Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the many blessings of the past week. Thank you that we even had a blessed Sabbath last week where we were able to open church. And I'm just so thankful, Lord, for your guidance and your protection and your watch care over all of us. And even now, as we're about to open the Bible to study, we just ask for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please continue to bless us. Continue to be with us. Continue to guide us through this time and this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we are continuing something that we studied last week. It is We're looking at some parables in Luke chapter 15. And the, the, the parable that we're looking at this evening is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, this parable is probably one of the most famous parables out there and one of the most talked about, preached about stories in all the Bible. And more often than not, this story or this parable is preached in isolation. It's taught on its own. It's not connected to the previous parables. But today, I want to remind you that, you know, let's not forget that the the lessons that we learned the last time we studied about the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now remember, the parable of the lost sheep, it represented the person who knew that he or she was lost, and the parable of the lost coin represented those that were happily lost in that condition, and they were unaware that they were heading to certain or for certain doom and destruction. And we know that the the shepherd represented the the, I mean, the shepherd of the sheep represented Jesus and the woman looking for the lost coin, that represented the church as a woman in the Bible represents a church. And, you know, the lesson that we learned there is we need to, to be working the same works as Jesus, our example, to seek and to save the lost. However, today we're getting a little bit of a different perspective. Remember, The reason that Jesus gave these parables, and these are all connected, he spoke them all one after the other in Luke chapter 15. Remember, Jesus gave these parables because at the beginning of the chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees were accusing him for eating with sinners and publicans, as if it was some sort of deadly disease or he had no right to be sitting with them and mingling with such an uncouth or wicked or evil crowd. And so Jesus promptly replied by saying what? He didn't come to save those that were righteous or that were justified. He came to save the lost, the sinners, and call them to repentance. So now let's have a look at this parable this evening, shall we? This parable, the parable of the prodigal son, is by far the longest parable of the three. And it takes up most of the chapter, actually. So we're going to start there in Luke 15, verses 11 and 12. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, what is the younger son asking for? This man, he had two sons, and the younger of the two comes, and he's asking for his inheritance. Now, look, when does a person normally receive their inheritance? It's normally when the father and mother have passed away, and then what they have is passed down to their children, right? But this younger son 
is so audacious that he asks for his portion of his inheritance while his father is still alive, almost as if he's wishing for his dad to die soon. At least, that is what seems to be implied, right? And moreover, he's the younger of the two sons. Now, normally, when we look at the birthright, the birthright was something in the Israelite economy and the Jewish economy. It's since the beginning with Abraham, right? And the birthright would normally fall to the oldest, not the youngest. And the right of the birthright is you have the right to all of the father's inheritance. Everything, the riches would belong to the oldest. And so this youngest son, he's really off to a bad start. Yet the father complies with him and gives him his portion. Now what happens next? Luke 15, 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And so soon after receiving his inheritance, what does the younger son do? He leaves the father's house and he goes off into a far country and he wastes his substance. He wastes all the inheritance, the riches that his father had worked so hard for and he wastes it on what it calls riotous or loose living. He uses up all that money until what? It runs out. And it must have been a few years of spending freely. I'm sure it didn't happen in one week. I'm sure it didn't happen in one month. He probably had enough to buy a nice car and live in some fancy hotels or rent an Airbnb somewhere and just a nice place. And he lived it up for a few years and he must have been spending either really freely for it to run out so quick or he just has must have been really mismanaging his money that it just disappeared very quickly. But after all the money is spent, what happens? Luke 15 verse 14 says, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Just as he spent his last penny, as he scraped the bottom of the barrel, as they say, God in his providence sent a famine and he began to be in want. He began to be in need. Things got from bad to worse, from no money now to hungry and living on the street. And now food is probably even more scarce. And um, well, not probably, it is. And because of that scarcity, the, the expense of the food also went up as well. So whatever money he really did have left from maybe selling his car and whatever other possessions he would have bought with his father's money, some gold necklaces or whatever it would have been, he would have run out of money pretty quick. Now remember, this is a parable, friends. What does famine represent in the Bible? Not literal famine, but, you know, to us today, what does this represent? In Amos chapter 8 and verse 11, the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. What type of famine? It's not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
What does a famine represent? It represents a famine of hearing the Word of God, the lack of interaction and the hearing of God's Word in our lives. And so when we leave our Heavenly Father's presence and we go and live riotously, we live, go and live freely like the rest of the world and we begin to neglect the hearing of God's Word, we're not spending time in His Word or time in our personal devotions, we're not going to church, there arises this famine in our life and I'm telling you, it affects us in more ways than just our spiritual life. But this boy, he is lost. He is lost. He's left the church. It was intentional. He was the one that walked away from his father's house intentionally, just like the sheep that walked away from the flock and from the shepherd who had his back turned while he was working on something. And so he knew what he was doing and he left on purpose. And so when this famine comes, what does this boy do? In desperation, what does he go and do? In Luke 15, verse 15 and 16, the Bible says this, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And so he goes and joins himself with a a citizen of that country. He's at the mercy of the people of the world. And when this famine comes and the famine arises of the Word of God in our lives, we go and seek help, not from the Christians, but those of the world, isn't it? And in order to survive, we end up doing things that that really as a Christian we would have no right doing. You see, this boy was sent off into the fields to go and feed swine. And you know, Jews, they don't eat pork. They didn't eat pigs. And even now, he has to touch them. He has to be in the sty with them. And he has to mingle with them in a sense. And something that no Jew would have ever been caught doing. He's desperate, he's hungry, and even the the food of the pigs start to look so tasty to him. That's what desperation does to us, friends. That's what even hunger does to us. And so it's at this point, it's at this point where he is sitting in the pig pen. He's feeding, he's pouring out the, the leftover scraps from people's tables. And he's giving it to the pigs and this food is stinking at this time. It must have been rotten and the smell from the pigs, of course, would have been unbearable already. But as he's doing all of this and that that food just looks so nice to him, the scraps from other people's tables, he finally comes to his senses. He's so hungry, but finally he comes to his senses. But now, friends, look, let me ask you a question. Could this young boy have come to his senses earlier? Could he have opened his eyes earlier and gone back to his father earlier? Yes, he could have. But you see, friends, without this understanding of desperation in our lives, sometimes we are just still happily lost. Without this sense of feelings of 
um, hopelessness and calamity in our lives. Some of us, we just don't want to go do the humiliating, humbling thing and go back to our parents, our father, and admit that we were wrong and eat the humble pie and ask our Heavenly Father to forgive us. But it's only when usually calamity strikes, when something major hits us, which is what happened to this prodigal son. And you know, by the way, prodigal is, is not found in this parable at all. It's, it's coin, a, a term coined by theologians just mean to freely spend and be spent. And so this, this prodigal son was freely spending until he ran out of everything. He's caught in the midst of a famine to the point that he's had, had to go feed pigs until their food is looking tasty to him. That finally, it dawns on him. Finally, his eyes are open. Finally, God is able to get his attention. Not that God has to use us every single time. No, God wants to come to us first with a still small voice. He knocks on the doors of our hearts. He wants to come in and sup with us and eat with us and gain entrance and just to know us. But we walk away and we wait for calamity to strike. Then only then we wake up to the lost condition and the seriousness of the condition and life that we're living at this time. And so when this son comes to his senses, what happens? What happens? Let's keep reading in verse 17 to 19. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. The son comes to this realization that his father's servants have it better than he does. They probably are not hungry. They're not sitting in a pigsty feeding pigs filled with dirt on their clothes, his clothes, you know. They're, they're having food to eat and a bed to sleep on. They're having a shower probably every day. And he says, so many of my father's servants, they are having a better life than me. He realizes that they're in a better condition, in a better state than he is. Friends, this is what you call conviction and repentance. The Holy Spirit gave it to him. You see, friends, in and of ourselves, we have no desire for better life. Do you know that? We looked at repentance last week. It's God that gives us repentance. He's the one that gives us this feelings of remorse. He's the one that gives us moral principles, the understanding of what is right and wrong. He's the one that gives us a moral compass, desiring a better life, feeling bad when we have, we have cheated or when we've stolen something or when we've killed somebody, right? He's the one that affects us in that way. We, we, we in, an, in and of ourselves, we have no desire for, for a better life. God is the one that gives us repentance. And so when he's at his lowest point, finally, God is able to speak to him. God is able to communicate with him. God is able 
to touch his heart because he's not distracted by his worldly friends, his worldly life. He was happy when he had all the money and he was too busy to hear God's voice. But now he has all the time in the world and conviction dawns on him. He realizes how much he has hurt his father. And he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my dad to forgive me. But just make me as one of your hired servants. You see, friends, it's not enough just to be convicted. Look, the request of the son would have been just. It would have been doing the son a favor. It was not a bad request and an unreasonable request to ask of. But you see, just having this feeling of conviction was not enough. When we have this repentance, we must act on these feelings of repentance. We must be willing to retrace our steps from where we fell. And the son was willing to go back to his father in his desperation, yes, but to say sorry, to make amends. And that's why he said, I will arise and go to my father. You see, friends, a prodigal son represents all of us. But what does it take for us to come to our senses and say, I am going to arise and go to my father? What must we go through in order for us to wake up to our current and desperate lost situation? Losing money, losing health, a breakup, losing our, our, all our wealth, our job, our scholarship. What is it? Do we realize our need? It took sitting in a pigsty ready to eat pig's food for the prodigal son to come to his senses. And we can come to that realization earlier if only we would pause and think about our life. Maybe even just reflect on your past week, the direction that your life has been heading. Has it been the right path? Is it something that you're happy with, that you're proud of, that you're getting up every day for? If not, quickly arise and go to our Father, our Father in heaven. But you see, friends, this parable is the one that, that highlights internally what is taking place in those that are lost. God allows these situations to come upon us that we would realize that we need to get up and that we have to go back to our Father. And you, so, you see, look, when the Son says, I will arise to go to my Father, the question is, hey, why doesn't the Father come to Him, right? Well, you see, God has already gone to the ends of the world to save us. But it is still ultimately our choice if we want to be saved to, be respond, uh, to, to respond, right? We can see the differences between the first two parables in this chapter and in this parable. The parable of the lost sheep, okay, it illustrates what the Father desires to do in order to save us. He will go to the ends of the world. And He has. He came to this earth and He died for every single one of us. The second parable, the parable of that lost coin, the woman, it illustrates the work of the church and what they should be doing to seek and to save the lost. And now we see in the parable of the lost 
Son. Our part to play in confession and repentance and arising and going back to the Father. The hardest part is to be convicted of our wrong and our need of Jesus. But I, I believe that when we really have come to that point where we have just hit rock bottom and there's nothing else that we can do, the next step is just let's go. Let's go back. An act of desperation. You're at the bottom. All your friends have um, abandoned you. You don't have anyone left to lean upon except you know that your family will never abandon you. So in coming back to the Father, what was the Son willing to do again? Make me as one of your hired servants. At least he would have a bed to sleep on. At least he would have food in his tummy. He's not coming back with any pride or thought that he is the Son and he deserves to have his seat next to his Father. You know, when we realize our need, friends, we are willing to humble ourselves to the point that we would take that humble path and come back no matter how humiliating it is. If he went home and the father really made him a servant, would it have been fair? Absolutely. He had already taken his portion of his inheritance. Really, what belonged to him there? as a son, as someone that is connected with his father. Nothing. It all belonged to his older brother now, right? So it would have been fair for him to take his place next to all the servants, all the hired servants of the father. So off he goes. He begins to make that long journey home. And as he rounds the corner, as he comes over the top of the hill, the father sees him from a distance. And how does the father react? Let's read from verse 20 to 24. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it. And let us eat, and be merry, for this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. The father sees the son afar off, and what does he do? He begins to run to him. He goes all the way to where the son is, who's walking slowly. He's just maybe rehearsing his speech. He knows that he has to humble himself. He knows that he has to make amends. He knows that he's wrong, so he's not running back. No, he's walking back. He's making that long trip back and maybe slowing his pace back a little bit. He's a bit afraid of how his father's going to react, but the father runs to him. Why? Because he wants to protect him. You see, the son had dishonored the father so much. He had taken his hard-earned inheritance, which did not belong to him. And others could have seen this and would have been so angry to see him come back. How dare you come back and set foot on your father's property again? And they would have stoned him. They would have stoned him. He deserved to die. And so the father was running out there to protect him. Yes, yes, my son, he's come back. And the father, he quickly goes and puts three things on his son. Three things. What were they? 
It was a robe, it was a ring, and it was the best shoes as well. You see, friends, if we are to be restored back to our Father in heaven, we need these three things as well. And these three things would have been a sign of what the family would have worn. You wouldn't have seen uh, a servant wearing a ring or a robe or even shoes. No, friends, it was only the family that did. And so, what do these three things represent for us spiritually? If we are to be called the, the, the Son of the God in heaven, what are these three things? Let's start with the robe, okay? What does the robe represent? Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Friends, do you see what that robe is? We're clothed with the garments of salvation, and the robe of what? Of righteousness. It represents the righteousness of Christ, His perfect life, His spotless life. And when Christ puts His righteousness on you and on me, He's telling us that all the past sins have been forgiven. It is pardoned. He is restoring us into favor with Him. But of course, we need to confess if we want to be forgiven. And that's what the son was doing. He was starting his confession speech and the father knew and he just said, that's enough. And he gave his son a big hug and put that robe on him. And we need that perfect robe of righteousness, of Christ's life, him living in and through us if we are to be called sons of the almighty and high God. So the robe, righteousness. Now the second thing is he put a ring on his finger. What does ring represent in the Bible? Well, Esther chapter 8 and verse 8. What was a ring used for here? Esther 8, 8, Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. So what is a ring used for here in Esther? It's to seal, to seal documents. Like, you know, they put the hot wax and you you seal things, right? So the king, it was, of course, a special ring, one which only the king would have, but it was used as a seal. Now, what is seal in the Bible? Let's also go to 2 Corinthians 1, 22. Who hath sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So we are sealed with what? The Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 also says a similar thing. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Also, Ephesians 4.30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Friends, we need to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. In what way? Sealed with the Spirit? Well, what does the Spirit help us do? He's the one that lives in us. 
He's the one that lives through us. He's the one that gives us power to live a holy life. So that that ring has that significance because it's not enough just to say you're sorry. It's important also to show your sorry by living a different life, a life that is changed, a life in Christ, a life that only the Christian can live by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so just as the ring that was given to Pharaoh, by Pharaoh to Joseph made him second in command, the ring that is given from the Father to the Son also shows everyone the position that the Father now is giving His Son. And so the reception of the Holy Spirit in our lives, friends, it's what will restore us back into favor with God. We cannot come into God's presence as a sinner. God, He needs to clean us up. But He's the only one that can clean us up. He can wash away all our sins. And then He, by His power through the Holy Spirit, is the only one that can keep us from sinning as well. And so how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, Luke 11 verse 13 says, we got to ask, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And so friends, if you want to be righteous, if you want to live that righteous life, you've got to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit of God. And then lastly, the shoes. This son was clothed Uh, with the best shoes on his feet. What does the shoes represent in the Bible? Ephesians 6.15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the shoes represent the gospel. But why is this so important? Why do we have to wear the gospel on our feet? Well, what's so important about our feet? Let's also go to Psalms 119 and verse 133. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. And so we have to have our steps ordered in the word of God, the gospel. The whole Bible is good news, right? That's what the gospel is. But that must be the book that will guide our lives from now on. We've got to allow the word of God to guide us to lead us and the Holy Spirit to empower us to actually be able to live those words that we read every day. So friends, it's not enough just to be forgiven. That's justification. We must also make sure we don't go back to our old life of sin. How? We got to be sanctified. Bible and the Spirit of God. That ensures our sanctifying experience that we don't go again and prodigal son comes back and says, oh, after one year, I'm tired of this place again. uh, Father, I want my inheritance, another portion of inheritance. Let me go off again. No, friends. It ensures that we don't go off wondering again. Not just because we're scared of eating pig's food, but because now we are totally in love with the Father. You know, friends, this would be a fitting ending for the story. The son comes back. He was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive, the father says. And everybody is rejoicing except for one person. Let's continue reading. I'm going to read the rest of the parable now. Verse 25 to 32 of Luke 15. 
Now his eldest son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And how did the son react? He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I any time thy commandment. He was a good son. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed him for the fatted calf, killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now, friends, what does this all mean? You see, the, the, the last section of this parable, it talks about the elder brother, the oldest son. He finds out that his younger brother has come back. And is he happy or is he angry? He is absolutely angry. He is so jealous, probably. Why? He's wondering, why did my dad throw such a big party for this boy who took all his, well, half his inheritance and spent it all, and now he's come back worse than when he left, and he himself never got such a party for for standing by his father's side all this time. He was one that had been the faithful one. He'd always been by the side of his dad. You know, friends, this is a really important section to look at because more than one-third of the verses of this parable is looking at the older son. Let's not forget the importance of this final section. Now, why is this so important? Well, do you remember what the Pharisees and scribes said to Jesus at the beginning of this chapter? If you forgot, go back and read it. Verses 1 and 2. While Jesus is eating with all the sinners and the publicans, while he is hanging out with them, what happened? They said, we can't believe that you would eat with these sorts of people. You see, in this parable of the prodigal son, that older son, the one that never left the father's side, that older son represents who? It represents the Pharisees and the scribes who thought themselves apparently holy and righteous. Jesus was telling them that they should be the ones that were rejoicing, that should have been rejoicing over every sinner that repents. And in order for them to do that, they should have been the ones that were eating and drinking with those publicans that they were denouncing whom Jesus was eating with. You see, the older brother should have been thankful that his brother was back, that he was lost, but now he's found. And, you know, he he forgot that the father had sustained him all this time as well. The father said, all that I have is yours. But the Pharisees, they've forgotten their calling to seek and to save the lost, not simply just to be holy. But you see, look, friends, this reveals a very interesting lesson. We know that the older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. And we know that this people, they were not that righteous at all. 
from all that the Bible talks about them. We have enough details to know that these Pharisees and these scribes, they weren't that righteous as they thought themselves to be. In fact, they were trying to hide all their sins under the supposed pretended cloak of righteousness, fasting and paying tithe and, you know, not even carrying their beds on Sabbath and all the other strict, rigorous uh, traditions that the Jewish culture had, right? It become a burden. They lost the love. This, this, this religion had just become a form. Now, they weren't harlots or tax collectors. They didn't cheat or lie, but under all this fake exterior, they were just as lost as those whom they despised. And you see, friends, it is possible to be at church every week and still have the heart of the prodigal son. You might have never left church. You might have never gone out and did all the bad things that the worldly people did, But, you know, in our hearts, we desire all those worldly things. And although we've never left church, quote-unquote, we're just as lost. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, how can I know if I am like that or not? How can I know if I'm in church and possibly lost? Well, we don't want to be like the older son. And we don't like want to be the younger son that... We'll sit in the pigsty. We, we want to have a really deep and meaningful relationship with our Father. How can we know, Ben? How can we know? As you're sitting here this evening, how can we know? You know, I go to church. I, I think I love God, right? How can I know if I am like that older son? Well, it's simple. Friends, do you rejoice when you see sinners come to Christ? Are you excited about the church growing and excited about seeing people getting baptized. Actually, what is church to you? Is it just a social circle? What is it? Is it just a round of activity that you do every week? Or do you actually have a purpose that God has called you to in the church that you belong to right now? To serve. You know, there are some well-meaning Christians that do their devotions every week. But they just go to church and come back. They they make sure they listen to a good message. They, quote-unquote, seem to understand present truth. But are you rejoicing over that one sinner that repents? In fact, are you bringing people to Jesus? Uh, Are you the one that's out there, like the woman looking for the lost coin. Because, you know, when it comes to looking at this older son, he never left the father. But he never really cared about his younger brother who left. Right? And in fact, when he came back, he wasn't happy. Whilst everybody else in the house was happy, he was angry. All of heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. And we've seen that in the previous two parables. How much more should we, who are living in the midst of this sin-sick world, and we have front row seats to see people change before our very eyes, are you actively involved in seeking and saving the lost? If not, we are just like the scribes and the Pharisees. We're no better. We're not any different. And in fact, the people that come in, 
we, we might get angry. It's like, oh, more people to feed now. Have to cook more food or to church, right? We react in different ways. Instead of, wow, more people are coming. And we're just so thankful that people are coming to Jesus. It's a very different attitude, even though both are in the church. Oh, now we've got to spend more money. Oh, now we've got to do this. We, you know, we've got so many different reasons and things, right? But friends, how do you react? How are you reacting today? How, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you actively involved in the work of evangelism? to seek and to save the lost. And if you're not, friends, may God touch each of our hearts and our lives today. That He would touch us in such a special way, a personal way, to open our eyes to help us to see how much He has blessed us, how much it is so much more blessed to be by His side than to be living in the world. May God open our eyes to to see in our own lives in the personal way that He has reached out to you and to me. And He's still doing that tonight. He's knocking on the doors of our hearts. But many of us, we have missed it. We have misunderstood it. We've walked away from it. And maybe you have experienced that pigsty conviction moment. May God help us to see Because only as the love of God resides in our hearts, only as our hearts are set alight with the Holy Spirit and with His Word abiding in our hearts, and only as we have experienced His forgiving grace can we understand what it means to have the love of Jesus burning in our hearts for those that are lost and that are sinners out there. This This is not something that can be fabricated, that can be forced, that happens when you come to the church. It's not like, okay, I've got to learn how to pray. It's not about how I can learn how to have love for people. No, friends, that love only comes from Jesus. You can't fabricate that. You can learn the methods of evangelism, how to preach and how to teach, how to share, how to reach out to people, how to socialize with people. We can learn all the methods, but the methods will do nothing unless we have the heart. And that's what we need today. May God give us a taste of His goodness, His love, the sweetness of His presence with each of us, that He would set our hearts alight and on fire for all those that are lost and perishing out there. May God help us to that end. Let us bow our heads. Father in heaven, Lord, may you please give us your love today. Love for people, love for souls, a burning love that Jesus had every moment while he walked this sin-sick world. Lord, please, may you give us that passion for souls, that burden for people. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord. Fill us with your words from the Scripture. Set our hearts on fire with your love. And give us that passion, the passion of Christ. And so, Lord, we just surrender our hearts and our lives again to you today. May you please guide us. May you please lead us. May you please use us just to be that great blessing as Christ was when he was on this earth. 
Thank you, Father. We just surrender our lives again to you this day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.